Good morning, church. Um, it is a privilege to be up here. Um, we'll be in Colossians 3, so I'll let you guys turn there while I talk a little bit here. So this is a massive privilege for me, and I, as you can probably tell, I'm very excited to do this. Um, I'm also very terrified. <laughs> uh, I'm a little nervous. As you can probably tell, I'll get over that. That's not a huge deal, but I am, I'm more terrified because I want to be faithful to God's word. I want to be faithful to his truth. Um, and this, this is, in my opinion, we have worship, we have the songs but the service is centered around the preaching. And today I am, the elders have put me in charge of that today, and that is fearful for me. So as we pray today, I ask that you pray for me as well. So let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for this day. You are good. You are so good. Let us always... Always be mindful of that. Let it, let that reality not be just um, just a silly thing to us, but that it's that it's amazing that you are good to us um, when we least deserved it. I pray that your glory be shown today through your word, and that I do that faithfully, and that hearts are convicted, and that hearts are encouraged, and that we look to Christ, and that He's magnified. And I pray all of this in His name. Amen. So we'll be Colossians 3, 12 through 17. I'm going to read through the 17th verse, but it's the, the majority of the text is going to be through 12 through 14. Verse 12. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's important to note that this, specifically trope 12 through 14 here, it's rich, not only with theological truth that I'll speak briefly about, but it's rich with how that theological truth is going to impact our daily lives. Um, I'm going to try to make this as practical as we can, but there's, there's a slight danger in that because if you're practical but that you don't know what you're basing that off of, the theological foundation truth is what I want to focus on a little bit today. Um, but this, this passage comes after Colossians 1 which Randy has been teaching on the past Wednesdays, that talks about the preeminence of Christ. For those who don't know, the preeminence, preeminence means ruler of all or above all others. So in other words, Colossians 1 is telling us, Jesus is the ruler of all creation. Not only is he the savior of all, but he is the, not only he is the savior, but he is the creator of all. He is the boss, so to speak. 
And so Colossians 3 comes after that, as, as well as Colossians 2, has this theological truth that is precious to us, and it should be. And it tells us then, in light of that fact, in light of who Jesus is to us, live this way. And so that's kind of the flow of this, of this sermon today. So again, it's a little. It's, it's it's important to note the context here. We never want to just preach a sermon, just give out verses and not explain what's happening around it a little bit. So the whole point is this: since you've been raised with Christ, since Christ is your life, since, since your life is hidden in Christ, put on these things, these these characteristics that I'm going to talk about today. So I'll go just briefly through each little term here. So, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So, just very briefly, put on, just that little phrase there. This just simply means to have the characteristics that he's about to talk about, the Apostle Paul. It means taking on the character of Jesus himself. Of course we know that we're supposed to be Christ-like. So that's, I know that's elementary a little bit, but that's just I wanted to make that clear. So, God's chosen ones. So what comes to mind when we think of that is the doctrine of election. That's not going to be the brunt of my sermon today, but I want to make clear uh, the the beauty of that doctrine. Um, I'm going to turn to Ephesians 1. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it real quick. Because it captures the essence of what that doctrine is. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I'm going to go down further here to verses 11 and 12 and read those as well. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, from my own words, election is this. God, before the foundation of the world, before, the, before he created anything, set his love and his affection On a certain people. And he chose to save those people. And by implication in the process. Not saving others. As fast as I can state it with clarity. This is not based off of. God looking down the quarters of time. Seeing who would choose him. And then basing his decision off of that. The reason I read Ephesians 1. Is because it's according to the counsel of his will. His sovereign good pleasure. So in other words, he didn't choose me. He didn't elect me because, like Paul stated, wherever he is, I can't see him, but because I have a good voice or I'm um, a nice person, I can use Blake. That's not what happened. Simply based off of his sovereign good will. We don't know what that technically is. We don't need to know. But we do know that it was out of love. And so my, my duty with talking about election here is not to give a defense for it, but to tell you the preciousness of it. I mean, I know as, as Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we wholeheartedly, most of us believe that. 
It is a beautiful truth that God elected us based off of nothing we did. And it is all of grace and it is all of love. So, of course, by saying that, I do know that election is often one of those one of, one of those doctrines. People don't like it. But it shouldn't be that way. Like I said, it goes it goes back to the foundational truth that God does whatever he pleases. Even if we don't believe in the doctrine of election like we do, this church does, that's fine. It's not a huge deal. But if you believe in God's character, and if you believe that God does whatever he pleases, then you should be okay with that, and you should marvel that it is all of grace. That is nothing in me that deserves it. If we believe that God is God, and that God is good, and that we trust in his character, we should have absolutely no problem with the doctrine of election. Because when we have a problem with that, we ultimately have a problem with how God has orchestrated everything in place. Understanding this, election is, is about grace. It's about unmerited favor. It's about mercy, which obviously means just not, not following through with what is justly deserved. In election, God had mercy on us as sinners, knowing we were sinners, knowing we rightfully deserved judgment and wrath and hell, yet he chose us anyways out of love for his for his holy name. And of course, yes, it was out of love. He put his affection on us when we least deserved it. Let's marvel at that. We use the term love so frivolously today. I love you. I love this. I love that. God loves you. Let that sink into your heart today. Election shows us that God loved us at our most unlovable. He chose to set his affections on us prior to us being born. Election is all of grace. Let us marvel at that today. So the next next term here is holy and beloved. So Christians are holy. And I want to explain that in two ways. This holiness is not based off of anything in us. When, a, when, when somebody repents of their sins and believes in the person and work of Jesus, immediately the merits of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, well, you know, his, you know what I mean, is transferred to our account. And all of our sin, past, present, future, is transferred to him. It's what is called double imputation. His righteousness is imputed to us, and our sin was imputed to him. So that when we say, I am a Christian, I'm not going, I'm a great person. I feed the homeless. I help the poor. I help the old lady cross the street. It's not based off of me. It's based off of Christ. We have no reason to boast. And if we do boast, you have things to question. Ephesians 2.8, it is all of grace. We are also holy based off of sanctification. So, of course, we're justified. We're declared righteous in God's sight because of that imputation I just talked about. But then God starts the process of sanctification. In other words, making us more holy day by day, making us more like Jesus. So it's important to understand we will never be fully sanctified on this side of glory. And if you hear teachings like that, disregard them because it's not true. We will never be fully sanctified on this side of heaven. 
Yet God sees us as perfectly holy right now if you are in Christ. That is not something that should be just looked at and, oh, that's great. Think about it today. God looks at you if you are in Christ and sees Christ. He sees his righteousness and and he pronounces you holy. Let you marvel at that today. That is a great, great truth. We have motivation to persevere in holiness, to, to be sanctified when we contemplate the wonders of divine election, what I just talked about. Election is not some abstract theological concept, which we can make it be, unfortunately. Election is meant to drive us to the cross. It's meant to put us on our knees and say, God, you had mercy on me when I didn't deserve it. But yet you love me and you care for me and you protect me. And I can cast all my anxieties on you and I can not rest in my own abilities but in your ability because it is finished. Because it is finished. So that was the holy part of that. The beloved part. John MacArthur once said, Election means believers are the objects of God's incomprehensible special love. If you want to, turn with me to Romans 8, 32. Well, I said 32, but I don't mean 32. 38, sorry. (laughs) For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's another one of those texts that we put on a coffee cup or put in our mirror or something like that. And make it so just frivolous is the best word I can think of. It's not something we meditate on and say, there is literally nothing in existence that can separate you from the love of Christ, from the love of God. If you are in Christ, you will stay in Christ. And of course, that's not a way to say, go do whatever you want. That's motivation to persevere in holiness. God loves you. And it's a special love. I mean, we we like to differentiate. I mean, I know a lot of evangelicalism doesn't take this view, but God loves all people. Some people will say he doesn't. That's just, I just don't believe that. God loves all people. He has a common grace for all people. But he has a special, affectionate, intimate love with those who are in Christ. And that is clearly portrayed in Scripture. Let us take heart that God loves us with so much affection and intimacy. God takes pleasure in you. So let's go to the the real convicting part here. Start with compassionate hearts. Compassion should be stamped 
on the Christian's heart. When somebody thinks of a Christian, they should think that person is compassionate. But yet we miserably fell at that. I miserably fell at that. We all do. We should have hearts that when pricked bleed out in compassion. We will have compassion when we contemplate how we were saved, why we were saved. We will start to have compassion on others because God first had compassion on us. It's kind of like we love because he first loved us. We have compassion because God had compassion first. Even when he didn't need to. And and he doesn't have compassion on us to be like, for our own sake, it's for his name's sake, it's for his glory. The New King James Version translates the, the compassionate hearts as tender mercies. Let me ask you a question, and I'm asking myself this question too. Are you tender towards people in conversations? Are we? Most likely we're, we're, we're truly not. Whether that's on Facebook or on Twitter or just in personal conversations, we're not very tender with people. Yet we don't deserve to be mercifully tendered by God. <laughs> as weird as that sounds. We should be tender in our interaction with others and be merciful with them, even when they don't deserve it. Being there for those who are hurting, we need to be there for those who are hurting regardless of the situation, regardless of beliefs. I don't care what you believe. As a Christian, it is my duty and my joy to be there for you and to show you mercy and show you the love of Christ and have compassion on you regardless of the situation. So just think about, am I having compassion? Am I a compassionate person or am I a blunt person? Am I just abrasive? Or do I have compassion on people? Next term here is kindness. Another convicting one. Kindness is when the heart is generous towards other people who don't deserve it or, frankly, who don't even want it. We can say be kind, but there's more, it's, there's more to it than just being kind. You can be a kind person and not be a Christian. But there's a type of kindness that is also a fruit of the Spirit. There's a type of kindness that can only be in us unless it is Holy Spirit produced. So when we think of kindness, I think of God having kindness on us in two ways, at least. He has kindness and common grace. Common grace, in so many words, is there's multiple verses, kind of like the the rain falls on the just and the unjust. As practical as I can put it, you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a really, really good steak. (laughs) As silly as that sounds. (laughs) He shows, he shows mercy and love and grace even in the most silly things. You don't have to be a Christian for God to show you, show you grace in everyday life. As blunt as this may sound, all people who are not in Christ at this very moment, God would be completely just to strike them down right now. And if that scares you, it should. 
And if that makes you tremble and say, that's not my God, then you're not worshiping the God of Scripture. We need to have that right view of God to where, to where I'm, I'm saying, I'm a pitiful sinner who deserves judgment and God is holy and He is righteous and He is majestic and He is absolutely free to do whatever He wants. So therefore, I can't say anything to Him. Who am I to answer back to God? He also shows His kindness towards us in saving grace. Romans 2.14 Repent. Let me actually just go to the verse because I just lost it in my mind. Romans two fourteen. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There are millions of people who are not saved. We, of course, know that. The only reason they they continue to live daily is because God, in his forbearance and his patience, in his absolute kindness towards them, is giving them the opportunity, day in and day out, to turn to Christ. He shows massive kindness in that. So by saying that we are to be kind for this, one, because the Father was kind to us in His common and saving grace, and we are to be kind because our kindness glorifies God and could potentially lead somebody to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying because I'm a kind person, because I say good things and do good deeds and stuff like that, someone will look at me and say, oh, wow, Jesus is the Savior. I should repent. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the more you show kindness to people, the more you have conversations with people and are kind and in spirit, and that they see that, they glorify God. And that could, that could potentially lead somebody to search the scriptures or to, to, to come to church and to hear the gospel preached. So my point is, I'm not doing the, the saving per se. I'm, I'm kind of doing the, the wooing per se, if that makes sense. Leading them to go searching more. Next term is humility. Something I am great at. Admitting and acknowledging our need for God's kindness and compassion leads to true humility. When I, when I contemplate Scripture and I see that God was kind to me, that he has compassion on me. What other reaction am I supposed to have to that? What, are, what should my response be? Humility. If it's not humility, you're reading something wrong. Or your heart's deceiving you. Humility acknowledges our need for God's grace and our need for community. So, we love to emphasize we are saved by grace, obviously not by works. There are massive amounts of people, even in these churches all around us, that say they believe salvation by grace, yet they try to attain or or keep their salvation by their works, by their good deeds. I'm a good person. I go to church every Sunday. I give money to the church, this or that. 
But don't you see the pride there? Don't you see that person that is relying on their works? That person is not humble. That person is prideful and they're relying on themselves for salvation. And here's the big one. And humility acknowledges our needs, our need for community. I heard D.A. Carson once say that it would be absolutely unbelievable the term of a churchless Christian to the Apostle Paul in that century. That would just be ridiculous. Get plugged into a church if you're not. You need, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ and you want to pursue Him, you can't pursue Him if you're not in a local church. If you're not plugged in and if you're active and you're serving and you're not just going to receive, but you're going to give. We need community as Christians. We cannot survive without it. We cannot survive as a Christian if we don't have other people around us keeping us accountable and and, and encouraging us and rebuking us and everything in between. We need that. It's not an option. Now, of course, I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but it's kind of like if you're not going to church and you're just you're just going about your day, it's like, what are you what are you doing? Get plugged in, have community around you. You need that. So there's a I honestly couldn't figure out who originally said this. I think C.S. Lewis said it, but I'm not positive because I had (laughs) Tim Keller written down first. But here's here's what C.S. Lewis said. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So, thinking less of yourself is a form of self-pity. It has its roots in pride. It's kind of like, oh, poor me. You know, I'm just, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's silly, I just looked. (laughs) That has its roots in pride. And we, we all can see that. We all know what I'm talking about. So thinking less of yourself is not the point. That's actually not good. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It goes back to counting the, 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 uh, counting the significance of others more than yourself. It, it, it says, I am more concerned about others' well-being than my own. So when I live day to day, I'm not thinking all about Blake, which I do. We all struggle with that, don't we? But that's not the point. Live your day day by day saying, how can I do to help others? Not looking to yourself first. That's what it truly means. And of course, we need to be aware of fake humility. I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's easy to see sometimes and not easy to see some others, but People can know that they're faking their humility. So just, just be aware of that and be aware of that in yourself. Am I, am I truly being humble? We are to put, put on Christ by not asserting our rights above others. So in being humble, in being humble, we are not asserting our rights above others. And when I say that, who do we think of? Christ. Philippians 2. The humility of Christ. So I won't go there, but I'll just I'll say this briefly, try to say it correctly. Though Jesus was God, though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. And that doesn't mean he 
this, he, he stopped being God. That just means he um, stopped showing his glory or letting his glory be fully shown. Because he was God, he humbled himself as, as a servant and died a death upon a cross. That is the absolute, truest, most biblical example of humility. And we should follow that day by day. Next term is meekness or gentleness. Meekness comes in the footsteps of humility because when our mind meditates on what God has done for us, we become gentle people. Obviously, not all the time. But as a whole, we're, we're, we're gentle people. John Piper said, Meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. When we're meek or gentle, we have the spirit-produced ability to love, care for, and serve others regardless of their personal beliefs and feelings. That means I can go up to the Mormon church down there and I can be kind and I can be gentle with them in conversation. It is, I don't know how long ago this was, but probably a couple years ago, I was, I was at Shell's apartment and there was a knock on the door. And I opened it up. It was just a weird time of day too. So we're like, Who, who's at the door? I opened it up and it was two, two ladies. And they had the, the LDS church right here. As soon as I opened the door, I knew there was going to be a great conversation. So as an example, and this is not on myself, I just, we had just recently gone to a trip to Utah, so I had all the knowledge, so I knew what to say. Those girls didn't go home that day as Christians, of course. But that conversation, I was able to tell them as lovingly and as politely as I could that you are not a Christian. I had to tell them with the limited time I had, as gently as I could, that Joseph Smith is a false prophet. And that you're being led astray. Now, I made one girl tear up. And it's hard. I don't want to make somebody tear up. But out of love for Christ, I do. Out of as much gentle you can be. So that's my point. When you're having conversations with people, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or in in personal conversations with people you very much disagree with, be a gentle person. If you're not, how do you think that looks to the looks on Christ's name? Let me give you another example here real quick that's more controversial these days. So we have a lot of stuff going around the world about shootings, okay, police shootings. We can have very opposing views on that, and that's absolutely okay. And I've been guilty of this. But we need to be people who are gentle, who can have a very different view than one another, and, dis- and, and disagree with one another, but do it gently. And have, it, just, it goes back to compassion and humility. You may be right, you may be wrong. It does, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter in that situation. Be gentle with one another. 
Sorry if that, if that example wasn't the greatest one, but you, you get my point, basically. Be gentle in your conversations. I know that's difficult for us. It's difficult for me. I will promise you that. It is hard for me to be gentle in conversations, definitely with people that are, have opposing views or uh, it's easy to disagree with. So the next term here is patience. Patience here can also be translated as long-suffering. So when we think of long-suffering, who do we think of? We think of God. God was long-suffering in that he had patience on us to turn to Christ, even when we were rebelling against him. Like I said earlier, God would have been completely just and right to wipe us all out. Like the flood. I mean, that was completely right and just of God. And the, four, and the, and the, the, the people who were on the boat were there by mercy. But because he's long-suffering, but because he's patient with us, we, we see all throughout Scripture that God waits patiently for us to turn to him in repentance and faith. So today is another day for you to have the opportunity to turn to Christ. And, and more than anything, knowledge of his long-suffering, knowledge of his patience towards us, even when we're rebellious towards him. That should make us the same way towards others and definitely the church. We should be patient with one another. We should be long-suffering to each other, definitely your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other are both examples of showing Christ to a dying world. We bear the burdens... We bear the burdens of others, especially our brothers and sisters, because Jesus bore our burdens, namely our sin. Of course, Jesus bore our uh, anxieties and our trials and our difficulties and things like that. But mainly, he bore our sins on the cross. So because he bore our sins, we are able to bear the weight of others' difficulties. So our duty as a Christian... And it should be our joyful duty. If someone staggers, we help steady the load. If somebody is straining, we bear that burden. If somebody stumbles, we lift them up. We are to be people who are always there for one another and to gladly bear one another's burdens. We should be known as those types of people. When people people think of Boyd, or Cody, they should think, that person truly cares about me. I know that that person, if I have something going wrong in my life, I can call them and they will help me and they can bear my burden. Let's all be that type of person. We should go out of our way to bear others' burdens. That's a big one. I mean, I don't go out of my way to bear a burden. 
And that's wrong. We should go out of our way to, pe- to be people who to do those things. And we don't do it just to do it. We definitely don't do it for, for our own glory. We do it for the glory of Jesus. We do it for the glory of God. Because when we do that, His name gets praised. And we get more joy. The more He's praised, the more joy we get and vice versa. This should consume every Christian. And of course, this goes back to thinking of other people's needs before our own, which we all struggle with. Forgive as the Lord forgives. Let me read that verse. Let's see here. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When we come to understand what has been done for us in the person of work of Jesus, and that God has forgiven us in Christ, forgiving other people, regardless of what they've done to you, should not necessarily shouldn't be easy, but it shouldn't be an issue. So when we take our minds off the cross and we're holding a grudge, what do you think the issue is here? You're not, you're not setting your minds on things above. You're setting your mind on yourself. We're to be forgiving people. We need to be people, be people who don't hold grudges. That makes you a miserable person if you hold a grudge all the time. Regard, again, regardless of what happened to you. I know that, that that's a bit extreme in some cases, and that's not extreme in others, but it's still the same truth. When you don't forgive somebody, who do you think really gets the brunt of that? Your heart. Because you're holding on to that grudge, and it's making you miserable. It's making you just weak. You can't even function because you're holding a grudge, and you're suffering more than the other person. So look to Christ, and let that be motivation to forgive So like the saying goes, forgiven people forgive. The, the phrase, I can never forgive him, I can never forgive her, should never come out of our mouths. Never. How would you have liked it if God said, I could never forgive you? The Lord has dealt kindly and mercifully to us, and we should do the same. Now again, I'm not I'm not saying it's really really difficult to forgive some people. Okay? I understand that. But when we look to Jesus, when we look to God, when we look to the cross and we say, "I have been forgiven infinitely." When I didn't deserve it and when I didn't even want it. I didn't want his forgiveness, but he forgave me anyways. We were rebellious. But yet he forgave us. And so that in turn should orient your heart to forgiveness. And above all these, put on love. And all these characteristics, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The chief virtue of every Christian should be love. Love is how we keep all the commandments. 
You must love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. The law is fulfilled in those two things. And of course, that's another point straight back to Christ because he did that perfectly. I don't know who said this recently. Somebody, it might have been Justin, I'm not sure. But it, if you take care of that first part, if you take care of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the latter will be taken care of naturally. If you do that, you will be loving people as yourself. So understand, if the body of Christ is not bound together by love, love for one another, love for the lost, and most definitely love for Christ and his word, then what are we doing? If we're not showing love to one another, if we're not bound together by love, why are we even meeting today? There's absolutely no point for us to meet today and to hear all this if we're not bound together by love. That doesn't mean there won't be disagreements. That doesn't mean there won't be uh, tough conversations and rebukes and exhortations and encouragement. But that means love will be at the center and that love will be held together by the hands of Christ. So in other words, if we're not showing love, if we're not showing our love for each other via our actions and our words, of course, what does that show the world out there? What does that show the lost and dying world? That if the church can't even have love for one another, what does that say about our God? Have love for each other. Truly care for one another. So very briefly as I can, When I talk about love, because like I said earlier, love is such a frivolous concept we talk about today. And it's not as serious as it should be. So understand, love does not mean a couple things. It doesn't mean you compromise your beliefs. It doesn't mean you compromise your beliefs. So when you're having conversations with people and you're having arguments and stuff like that, and that person is living a lifestyle or they're doing this or doing that, which you know is sin... Love doesn't mean, hey, dude, just, just do it. God loves you the way you are. Um, you're, you're good to go. That is not love. That is cowardice. And that is, honestly, hatred. Love does not mean we compromise our beliefs. It, it means that we are loving that person even in, the situa- even in the situation where we have to say, brother or sister, you were in the wrong here, and I'll show you why. And this goes back to being gentle. This goes back to being humble. This goes back to being kind. It all flows together in one piece. So love does not mean you compromise your beliefs. And love does not mean looking the other way at behavior that is not pleasing to God. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick one example, as controversial as it may be. Homosexuality. I mean, that's just a that's that's a, that's a trigger right there, and I get it. Okay, I get it. I understand. But love does not mean that you look the other way when somebody you know is living a life that is displeasing to God. It doesn't mean you look the other way 
And that doesn't mean you're not going to be faithful and, and, and be a good steward and, and actually have a conversation and things like that. And that's on your part. And, I, that, you know, that's kind of besides the point there. But, again, love doesn't mean we look the other way when things are displeasing to God or things are when people are storing up wrath for themselves. And it's not always that serious, but there's sometimes in the church where people are doing things and um, that are still sinful, but you still need to not look the other way out of love for that person and of most of all, of course, out of love for the glory of God. And so love does include speaking the truth even when it's hard. Right now, I would hope to think I'm speaking the truth. And let me tell you something, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. I've never been the type of person to, to, to be that way. Never been the type of person to speak in public, regardless. <laughs> Being loving like that and speaking the truth in love doesn't mean you won't have hard conversations. Love also does include having to rebuke somebody. This is really for the inside the church, but rebuking somebody. When you rebuke somebody, it, it, as best as I can state it, they're doing something wrong and you're, just, you're basically just, per se, calling them out and showing them Scripture and where they're wrong. That's a difficult conversation to have. But it should be done out of love and it can be done out of love. Love for that person and love for the sake of Christ. And love does include, lastly but not limited to, preaching the whole counsel of God. And what I mean by that is you preach who God is, His character, what He has done, who He is, what He's going to do, how salvation works, just the, everything, the whole counsel of God. And in that, you will offend many people. And just because you offend people doesn't mean you're preaching out of love. We need to, to, to be a church, we need to be a community who preaches the whole counsel of God out of love for the lost, out of love for his church, and out of love for the glory of God. So, lastly, God is the reason for the, for the character of the new man. The title of my sermon is The Character of the New Man. God is the reason. So, just, let's think of compassion, kindness, meekness, gentleness, patience. These characteristics must be an ongoing reality in our lives. I'm not saying we won't slip up. I'm not saying we won't sin in that. But those characteristics should mark us as Christians. People should see us and they should see them. And of course, we can't do this perfectly because of our sin, but we do have the Spirit to help us. And so let me... Take these, have these characteristics in your mind and don't let them lead you to despair, to, to despair of yourself because you can't keep them perfectly. Because understand something. We have Christ. We have Christ. Jesus came down 2,000 years ago or so. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you should have died. He died. Three days later, he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of God. 
for everybody who repents of their sin and believes in the person and work of Jesus will be saved. That is a reality. So when you think of these characteristics and you're just like, I can't keep these. Well, you can't. That's the point. The point is to look to Jesus because he did keep them perfectly. He lived a perfect life. And when you do repent and when you do believe, all of his righteousness, all the compassion he had, all the kindness he had, all the mercy and gentleness he had, it is all transferred to you. Double imputation. All his righteousness is transferred to you and all of your sin is transferred to him. Past, present, and future. Let us be grateful for that today and let us marvel at, at what, is God, what God has done through Jesus for, for us. Pray with me. God, again, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you were good. You were good to us when we don't deserve it. You were so good to us. Help us me, help us be reminded day in and day out how holy, how righteous, how free, how majestic, and how loving you are. Let us look to the person of Jesus when when we are down and when we are having difficulty keeping these characteristics. Let the love of Christ that was shown to us be the motivation for us to keep these things. I pray that you help us do that through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your name is glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.